You need to learn to let go. Have you ever heard someone say that or wondered if you could do it? Let go, let it all go. It sounds wonderful if what you're carrying is heavy. Addiction, brokenness, failure, set it down, rest easy for a moment. But we're also holding on to so much that we can't live without. A kid who needs you to get down on your knees and hold him when it's not okay. A parent who needs you to reach out and smooth their hair. Our own tender hearts who love and want and need a second to feel joy again. In moments like this, the idea of letting it go seems impossible. I don't want to let it go. I want to hold on. My guest today understands the limits and joys of learning to hold on and learning to let go, and I am so grateful to be speaking with him today. Father Richard Rohr is the founder of the Center of Action and Contemplation. For decades, he has been an internationally recognized author and spiritual leader and fundamentally decent human being, a joy to meet. I'm so grateful. (laughs) (laughs) I am so grateful to meet you today. Thank you so much for doing this. Kate, it's wonderful to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. One of my favorite ones of your books is um, describes that that younger self we have. We have a younger self, don't we, who has all kinds yeah. of plans, who's very concerned about how to build a good life. Tell me about our first half of life selves. You're referring to the book Falling Upward, I take it, huh? Which I just love, yeah. <laughs> I recognize that distinction between the first and second half of life, which is really from Carl Jung, uh, helped a whole bunch of pastoral questions and concerns. And it helped me recognize something that now no longer causes me angst. And that is, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, and I've been a priest for 52 years. Believe it or not, I'm still in good standing. But I believe most of organized religion does the task of the first half of life, sometimes rather well, but over and over and over and over again. And maybe it's where we are after 2,000 years of Christianity. We're not yet adult Christianity, where we can lead people to the second half, where the concern is not certitude, being right, proving other people wrong, exclusion of those that we, um, for various silly reasons, do not think are worthy. That game is coming to an end. Now, it's coming to an end slowly because this growth happens in the individual person. I find a lot of individuals who are moving into the second half of life today. But it happens culturally, too. I I think what's tearing American politics apart, I don't know about Canadian, but is is a culture war in many ways between those two attitudes. Mm. And the first half of life is all about my identity, my group, my rightness, me winning, somebody else losing, because it's a zero-sum game, the most simple thing I can say about that is it keeps you from understanding the gospel. Mm. Now, of course, I am a Christian. 
so I'm concerned about the preaching of the gospel. And the gospel isn't a a win-lose scenario. The reason it was called good news, it's a win-win scenario. I always say God doesn't lose, (laughs) Uh, and he doesn't want his children to lose either. Once you hear that, it becomes sort of common sense or obvious. So um, we're getting there, though. We are. I meet so many people like yourself who instead of managing sin management, somebody called most of clergy work, uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, instead of holding on, uh, gaining graces, and we Catholics are indulgences, it's much more in the second half of life. And you named it already about letting go. Yeah. I wonder too, I'm just thinking about the decline of cultural confidence in institutions and leadership across the board. I I would love to have also seen you in the seventies and in the eighties. And in the, cause as a historian, I, there, we learned so much about modern religion from the seventies, but I, I do kind of wonder too, if, um, a lot of the the religious movements the last 50 years too have also been very even in their new age form or um more charismatic form have been also very interested in the questions of the first half of life like the the rise of the prosperity gospel yeah we can't ever not have a cousin who's trying to ses- send us essential oils who her evangelical church has also approved of you know that we find these uh sp- spiritualities that marry acquisitiveness and hunger and ambition. Like you're just about to find your best life now. You use words very well, Kate. I I can tell you've wrestled with these subjects. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know anything that gets us across, moves us from the first to the second, except great love and great suffering. But if you avoid great love of anybody, anything, the world, animals. You see my little dog behind me, Opie. Opie, look in the camera. There you are. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And if you avoid suffering, life will make it happen. So it's going to come your way anyway. You might as well learn (laughs) what you can from it. I have to admit that is one of my favorite of your thoughts uh, that, you know, the way you point out that the spiritual path most people need to be forced onto it. Yeah. Uh, they they lose a job, they lose someone, maybe they get sick, there's some kind of a- addiction or brokenness. And you have such a lovely phrase for that idea. It's just like a consequence of living. You called it necessary suffering. You know, I, I really hadn't thought that I was uh, somebody who really expected my life to get significantly better. But when it came apart so quickly... I was very surprised <laughs> and I, mm, yeah. I felt almost, um, I was, I'm embarrassed to admit that I felt almost like insulted. Like why, mm. you know, I thought I was as young uh, as you are. Yes. I just thought I, I'm, you know, don't I try, don't I work hard? Don't I, you know, like, don't I, don't I, don't I. And I, um, one of the things I love so much about your work is it no longer makes it strange to, oh, to yeah. have come apart. There's such a shame, I think, attached to suffering in our culture. Maybe I haven't just lost. Maybe I'm a loser kind of feeling. One of my favorite Catholic mystics 
is a saint we call the little flower. Yeah. And she said many wise things. Died at the age of 24. Yeah. And is a doctor of the church. I mean, not, if you know Catholic theology, that blows cardinals' minds that an uneducated French girl <laughs> could be a doctor <laughs> of the church. Yeah. But she just said so many wise, wise things. And one of them that isn't so well known is she said, God knows all the sciences, but there's one science God does not know. God does not know mathematics. God knows nothing about mathematics. <laughs> I love that. It's to the heart of the matter. Yeah. See, what we're all doing in the first half of life yeah. is counting, counting, measuring, weighing, deserving. I gave you this much. You give me back that much. As long as we're caught up in counting, uh, it's it's a dead end. It really is. And our capitalist countries have just furthered that as the framing. This is the way you frame reality. It's about mathematics. <laughs> the only quote I remember from her is uh, something along the lines of, um, great acts will not be afforded to me. So I must, you know, oh. accept little things like, like, um, little things with great love. Yes, that's, that's right. That's why Mother Teresa took her as her patron saint oh. because of that. Of course, yeah. Mother Teresa ends up doing rather great things, but yeah. says, just do little things with great love. Yeah, flowers, flowers everywhere. That's beautiful. For people who might not be familiar with sort of the fun particularities of different religious orders, you're Franciscan, and yeah. uh, what what makes what makes a Franciscan a Franciscan? What makes you a Franciscan? I'd love to hear it. Franciscanism, since its inception in the 13th century, with the life of Francis of Assisi, has always been a very alternative reading of the gospel from the underside. Someone said that everyone first wants to be a Franciscan. Now, I know we say that now because it's so romantic. Other orders might have a rule or a mission, yeah. but we have a, a persona that's just utterly attractive. Huh? He's yeah. the patron of ecology, you know. He's the patron of nonviolence. He's he loves animals. It's just everything that's yeah. up to date now is uh, what we tried to do. We didn't do it so well, but uh, yeah. it's hard not to want to be a Franciscan. I took Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners, years ago. Uh, we were both preaching in Europe, and I took him to Assisi. And he said, God, this town would make a Catholic out of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just reeks of Catholic uh, at its best. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom, beauty, joy, happiness. Uh, Franciscan spirituality is not sin-centered. Francis's starting point was not sin. Now, you've got to know how much that was. 
I'm not going to mention other denominations and other saints who tended to be rather sin-centered. His beginning point was suffering. Yeah. Human suffering. I'm sure that's why he was the first known human being to be marked with the stigmata, that he got the mystery of suffering so clearly that his psychosomatic unity that he was, it took place in his body. And that's documented from so many sources. It's not a Franciscan legend, you know. Uh, a man walking around with five wounds permanently in his body. Uh, he got suffering. But the, what makes it even better, uh, he was called a joyful beggar. He got it joyfully, you know. He was not a dour person. Yeah. He was a seven on the Enneagram. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, least, at least I think so. You're not a seven, it. are you? Are you a seven? No. I'm a, uh, that's so, I'm a two, but I'm like if a golden retriever became a person. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you've got the warmth of a two. <laughs> it seems so much more common to find people that just want to avoid the pain at all cost, and and, and, and not? I would have been there, sure, sure. Yeah, it has to be done unto you when you set out to choose intentional mortification, as we used to call it in the old church. You create some unhealthy personalities uh, with strains of masochism. And self punishment and self hatred. So you got to be careful. You got to ask God to help you ready to accept it when it comes. Yeah. But don't go out and seek it. Part of what I hear you inviting us to is to stop trying to climb the ladder. Absolutely. There is no ladder worth climbing, it's about descending. Uh, not going up, but going down. We call it a spirituality of subtraction. And I get that phrase from a good Dominican, Mike Eckhart, who said the spiritual journey has much more to do with subtraction than it does addition. Mm. Brilliant. We're back to math. Yeah, terrible math. I love subtraction it. Subtraction is still math, isn't yeah. it? But, yeah. It's all terrible math. I mean, grace is awful math that I that I didn't earn. Um, suffering is terrible math. God, you're supposed to love me, and now I have to walk through this pile of crap. Yes, and yes. feel your love, and then weirdly yeah. you'll show up, even though I just wanted a nicer apartment. You know, <laughs> it's all terrible. It's all terrible math. The way that love gets multiplied when you give it. That's so weird. You'd think it would just go away. The the only metaphor we have is human love. And because even our best human loves are still pretty much conditional. You know, we let our friend down, they let us know, or yeah. they punish us. So again, to imagine unconditional love I'm told it's literally unimaginable.
does seem like when people want to tell that they've changed, they do get these little gifts. There's other times when I see people work incredibly hard. They ask God to change them. They go to therapy. They walk walk the hard road of what you and I probably call sanctification. And it works. It's a kind of brick by brick change. Yes. But then there's the third, which I have been more annoyed by. There's just these magical divine moments. Mm. They've always been in times of my greatest suffering. I'm in the hospital. I shouldn't feel anything but despair. But all of a sudden, I feel loved. And it sticks around for months. And then it goes away. And (laughs) (laughs) if you could hold on to it, we always say, you will fall in love with the gift instead of the giver of the gift. And so the giver has to withdraw the gift and say, as it were, okay, do you trust me? Or do you just enjoy that good feeling? Yeah. And, I mean, that might seem like a minor point, but that is what has kept so many, I'm not trying to be critical of another group, but so many evangelicals and Pentecostals from mature Christianity. They're far too tied to feeling and uh, prosperity to things going well for themselves. And they make that the sign that God loves them. Whereas most of our Catholic mystics, it's exactly the opposite. When a new trial comes their way, hallelujah, a new chance to love Jesus. It's... (laughs) I mean, I'm not there yet. I wish I, wish I could say I was there. But I, I sure know that's the way all of our mystics talk. It does seem so often that um, we get these moments where we feel God show up, and then we're just back to being human again. Yeah, yeah me too. You know what Paul said about the thorn of the flesh? that he realized God gave it to him to keep him from getting proud. Uh, that we we got to face our really rather desperate humanity at least every day for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Or we would indeed think we're the cat's meow, you know, when when you enjoy so much of God's consolation. Uh, You've got to recognize you're naked, I'm naked underneath my clothes like everybody else. So there's no cure, I suppose, for being human then that you can just... No cure for being human. So when we can put it together and allow these contraries, seeming contraries, to coexist in us, then you can... Not be ashamed of your humanity, because you're still the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? And you have to choose to believe that most days. When you think negative thoughts or resentful thoughts are people who can't forgive as beautifully as you do. (laughs) Only sometimes. Just (laughs) falls into a chasm, and then it never comes out again. No, I trust you on that because, uh, God, uh, I've got a very poor memory. It's getting worse the older I get. And uh, I just don't remember who hurt me. 
or who screwed me in the middle of life. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't awesome. even remember it anymore. What a grace. What a grace. So maybe you have <laughs> spiritual amnesia too. <laughs> I'm sure this has been exacerbated by what we've all been through in the last uh, stretch, but also just how frequently tragedy comes to our doorstep. Yeah. Like I talked to a friend yesterday who lost who lost two of her kids in an accident this last year. And mm. she will just have to walk her life alone. And I am... Um, in the face of that, there's no language. It feels like there's there's no words to say. Well, we can no. go back to the way we were no. before. Or no. what do you say to people when they um, they're just hoping maybe that their spirituality would make things a little bit, I don't know, easy, <laughs> easier. <laughs> How do they endure it without yeah some sense of a bigger purpose, a bigger love, a bigger mind? I think that's so much in this time of COVID. How are people getting through this without a loving God? I find it easier to reconcile suffering around things that were, um, that feel like I just have to put down, I have to put down ambitions or put down dreams or put down maybe things I took on that I thought would make me happier like some of the the terrible things we do but we're really pretty secretly happy about them you know Mm. (laughs) the fun fun sins you know Um, but for things that have been taken from me like the the ability to always imagine being a mom you know the idea that other people would have to live without people they need like that's the stuff that i uh That's the part that feels um, hard to imagine that any kind of faith like relativizes that, I guess. Wow. That's the heart of a two. You've got the heart of a two. (laughs) For you, a relationship is everything. And and especially a, a sacred relationship like parents and child, you know. Uh, if you let go of that relationality, you're just not sure life means anything. Yeah. 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 We all are, uh, should be that way, but that's your gift as a two on the Enneagram to appreciate that relationship is the sacred, which comes from our doctrine of the Trinity. I always have to get theology into everything. But <laughs> <laughs> if God is utter relationship, yeah. then it's in relationship that we find our soul. Yeah. So you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. <laughs> you write uh, so beautifully about this feeling, um, the feeling of homesickness, that maybe sometimes there's a, mm. there's a little bit of an emptiness, a little ache inside of us, a yearning maybe for other people and for God that, that might, that might tell us something about what we're made for. I found that very comforting because otherwise I think maybe in our happiness obsessed culture, we feel like we're supposed to get to a point of ultimate satisfaction, but still there's there's something that tugs on us. Isn't there? Yes. Uh, uh, An essential restlessness Um, just enough of home is planted in us 
to know that's where we belong, whatever that connotes, and to know that um, we want more of it. (laughs) You know, you try to make so much more room for mystery, like just pulling apart these. Yeah. Yes. Hope so. The space that we find between each other to feel that like love and energy. Very good. Thank you. Yes. It does make more room to feel. Yeah. I guess just what, like a more sacred language to describe what helps us feel alive. I'm looking out of my geranium on my front porch here now. And my little Opie back there sleeping on my sofa (laughs) and trying to talk to you. Uh, If I can enjoy each of these, then I can enjoy God. But what would make us think that we would know how to be present to God if we don't even know how to be present to a geranium or a dog or a Kate Bowler? (laughs) (laughs) I hope this question does not sound impertinent, but I've been thinking about it. One of the things that's uh, special about priests and nuns and their formation is that they practice dying. They, True. you give up your belongings, you give up having kids, you abandon your future in a very concrete way. And I don't mean for this to sound dramatic, but do you think it's harder for those of us who don't have a lot of practice? In dying. Yeah. Are you getting yeah, better? If, if you don't practice ahead of time, it comes as a shock. Well, this shouldn't be happening to me. We move into a, a sense of entitlement that really doesn't serve us well. I think that's probably the main wound of American society. We're so entitled, thinking we deserve, we deserve. And it makes for very miserable people. I don't know what other way to say it. You know, every expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. And if you're expecting life to (laughs) meet all your needs, or if you're so rich you can make sure it meets your needs, that's a recipe for being very cynical, very dismissive. Uh, It's a shame. But people who practice letting go, they're the happy ones. Life doesn't disappoint them. Yeah. Yeah. After people have lost so much recently, they might feel a little reluctant to want to let go of, yeah, <laughs> of anything sure. else. How do we try to unclench our hands a little bit? How do we practice letting go? It's got to begin with very little things. For years, I told the story about three-tenths of a mile from where I'm sitting right now, there's a very long, interminably long stoplight. And I always just pull up just when it turns red. So I know I'm going to be sitting there a full three minutes, <laughs> which is nothing, you know. But I, uh, I just come on, come on, come on. Change, change. Because the post office is on the other side, and I'm always going to the post office. 
But when God made clear to me that I had to be happy on this side without getting the mail, and before I could race across Bridge Avenue, yeah, uh, I'm just, it was a major conversion in my life. Richard, if you can't be happy on this side of, of Bridge Avenue, what makes you think you'll be happy when you get over there? You're not happy. You're just moving. <laughs> because you're moving, <laughs> an American <laughs> thinks they're happy. It's very foolish because it keeps you permanently unhappy and needing to race somewhere else and race somewhere else. Now, the art of letting go is the art of living in the present moment. It really is. But a lot of it, honestly, comes with time. When I was, uh, most of my childhood, uh, my my dad was pretty severely depressed because, well, for a variety of reasons, partly Prozac had not been invented, but um, his career was such a great disappointment. He had wanted so much Mm. to be a historian and, um, and all the, all the work dried up. And so for about uh, 10 years, he sort of lived in a a museum of his own experience of uh, failure. And, you know, very slowly, like people do, um, the, the joy of trying uh, again brought him back to life, brought him to a sense of vocation and purpose and gift, you know, because he was always, is just such a fantastic teacher. And wow. learning, learning to do all that helped. But he, um, he got this chance to go on a, one of those semester C things when you oh, sure, um, sure. Go on a boat yeah. around the world. Yes. And he was so hungry to take everything in. And, but he noticed that the people who'd actually been on the trip, they have these lovely sort of pensioners, people who want to retire on a boat like that. And he said, the more people uh, lived, the more they refused to take any pictures at all. All they wanted to do, every t- they, everyone tears off the boat, hunger, hunger, hunger. And that they just wanted to, to look and to feel and to taste the salt air and, I guess when I think about that, I think, um, you know, my dad's desire for more needed to take him somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad it did. But man, when people are somewhere, it really is <laughs> so wonderful mm-hmm. to watch them just stop and learn to receive. Do you I guess. still have your father? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he good. retired in great um, satisfaction. Wow. Never having gotten, you know, the a great historian, huh? but just having gotten to do the work that became yes. really good for him. And then yeah. to see his daughter, a historian. Hallelujah. <laughs> and then we work together all the time. It feels, it does feel like sharing, just sharing the dream of it feels really completing, I guess, somehow. It does feel right now like we're being pushed to live beyond our certainties yes it feels um the invitation that you're giving us i i've to me it feels like that mystery is uh still going to be a gift there's still possibility and love there it's just not going to look nearly like the framework we imagined well you are a beautiful student of the mystery 
And you know, mystery is not that which is not understandable. It's that which is infinitely understandable. And so you're always on a search. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This was such well, a gift. you're delightful. I wish we had more curious people like you. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. God bless you, Kate. Let go. Let it all go. Except, of course, if you can't. If you're a parent who can't imagine life separate from your kids. Or if you're someone else's child who still reaches for your phone every time something big happens or sad happens, even after it's been years since they've been on the other end. Living in the present is nice in theory, except when you're in pain. So let's bless that tension, the push-pull of wanting to let go sometimes needing to let go, and also needing to hold on. God, sometimes it feels like a better person wouldn't be like this, tethered to so many hopes and fears and expectations. And yet, I want to gently crush the windpipe of the next person who coolly advises something like, having expectations will only set you up for disappointment. Blessed are we when we yearn, yearn for connection and love and touch. Blessed are we when we hunger for the beauty of life itself and the people to fill it. Blessed are we when we are unable to say, I'm letting it go, because we feel like we will be washed away into an ocean of nothingness. Teach us to hold on to the truths that enliven our spirits and fill our souls and loosen our grip on the painful untruths, like that we are alone or unlovable, or that desire itself is the enemy. Teach us to hunger for what is good and be filled. There will be no easy addition or subtraction. We will lose and we will gain, and almost none of it will make much sense at the time, and it forces our hands open. In the ebb and flow of wins and losses, comings and goings, we look for divine love in the mystery of it all. The stubbornness of flowers that still smile at us at the grocery store. And the need for endless small reminders that the pain of it all, the comedy of it all, keeps us wide, wide awake. work on the Everything Happens podcast and with the Everything Happens initiative is made possible because of our partners and generous donors, Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. And a huge thank you to my team who makes this work not only possible, but fun. Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Hagenbotham, Katie Mangum, AJ Walton, Catherine Smith, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, and Jeb and Sammy. And if you'd like to be a human with me, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. 
I also have a weekly email that might be the right dose of love and courage you need. Sign up at katebowler.com newsletter. This is Everything Happens With Me, Kate Bowler.